This message was recorded at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Through the ministry of The Cove, we're training people in God's Word to win others to Christ. It's our goal to develop Christians who experience God through knowing Him better, knowing His Word, building godly relationships, and helping others know Him. We trust that this message will strengthen your walk with God and help you experience Him right where you are. Okay, um, we're going to look at some more details of the life of Jesus. If you were here last time, that's what we we started doing. And uh, um, so let me, let's just go. Let's just start. Um, Yeah. Uh, The the foundation of the way um, I was taught to read Scripture came to me from William Lane, who was a, a great biblical scholar and pastor and one of the most important people in my life, the most important person in many ways in my, in my life. And Bill says that we, we uh, engage with Scripture at the level of the informed imagination. We engage with Scripture at the level of the informed imagination. We don't just imagine this or that and go off in you know, whatever direction. No, we, we do our homework, and that's what we're going to do this week. Or, well, I've actually done your homework for you. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> One of my mottos is always looking for someone to do my homework for me. Yeah, and but that ends up being me most of the time. So um, the the idea of the imagination is 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 important, uh, and it's it's not appreciated the way it should be in in uh, in studying the Bible. Um, the imagination is the bridge between your heart and your mind. Um, Jesus' favorite verse. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna look at all those kind of details. Shema Israel, ooh, Shema, that's what this says. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you must love him with all your heart, soul, and with everything you are. And the question is, how do I listen? Bill used to say the Shema, that's, it's, it's, uh, it's the central creed of Judaism. Um, a, a pious Jew prays this three times a day. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ha'afta, Every three times a day, if you're uh, a loyal Jewish person, you pray this prayer. And and I I will make a case later on that this is Jesus basically his favorite verse because he's asked twice what the most important commandment is, and he always answers with Deuteronomy six. That's what the, where this comes from. But what the what the Shema teaches us is that the best way to love God is to listen to Him. The best way to love anybody is to listen to Him. Right? You really want to love your spouse, you listen to them. You don't do things for them. You really want to love your kids, you listen to them. The best way to love God is to listen to them. And that's what the Shema is all about. Um, but the way we do that is by engaging our imagination because your imagination is what bridges your heart and your mind. I mean, we can just be mind people and be theological and do outlines and define words and do that sort of stuff. And some people are more, you know, more that way. Maybe you're more that way. Or we can just be touchy-feely devotion people. Be, I call them chill bump collectors. Um, maybe you're that way. You know, we tend to be one, more one way than the other. And you probably know if, if you're one, one way or the other. But the, but the, the thing is, the, the scripture is trying to recapture all of, all of us. And, and so it does that by engaging our imaginations, the, the bridge between the heart and the mind. That's what the scripture targets. It's not theology. We make theology out of it, 
And there's nothing wrong with that. And we write devotional you know, songs and we do devotional things with it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the scripture is poetry and, and story and apocalyptic and, and it's meant to engage your imagination. Get all of your heart and, and all of your mind. And so that's going to be our approach is we're going to try to um, engage the imagination. Uh, if you weren't here last time, uh, I'll, I'll basically tell you what we've already looked at in the life of Jesus. Well, we, we ask what the details of his life mean, and we're going to do that some here as well. Because it's not just enough to know a detail. You have to know what that detail means, and we're gonna, we'll, we'll get back to that. Uh, we looked at his world and how fragmented it is. Jesus' world is very fragmented. Um, we, we talked about the fact that there really is, there's no Judaism in Jesus' day. There are Judaisms. And that's from Isaiah Gaffney, who is a Jewish scholar, who says that. Uh, and if you read the Gospels, you know that. We got Pharisees, we got Sadducees, we got priests, we got the temple, we got the synagogue, we got all these different worlds that are sort of, uh, no one agrees on canon, no one agrees on resurrection, no one agrees on angels. And Jesus is, uh, begins his ministry in the midst of all that fragmentation and, commu- and confusion. So we, that we looked at that. Um, we, it, we looked at different people that Jesus engaged with kind of uh, intimately, uh, especially from the, the Gospel of John. We have seven intimate scenes. Uh, the Gospel of John is the only gospel that shows us Jesus talking with one person for a long time. Only John does that, and we looked at all those. Um, we looked at the Messianic miracles. In Judaism, there's a belief that there are four miracles that only the Messiah can do. And we looked at those and how Jesus perfectly fulfilled all those. Um, we talked about his mind, how his, and we're going to look at that too tonight, how his mind works. And Jesus thinks in Hebrew, which means he thinks in verbs, because Hebrew is a verbal language. We think in nouns. Our educational system is learning the names of things. Okay, if we think we know the name of something, you go to the doctor and you're sick, and uh, the doctor says, well, you have cancer. There's part of you that's relieved because you know the name of what's wrong with you, because that's how we think. That's not how Jesus thinks. He thinks in verbs. And we'll, we'll, we may touch on that again. Um, we looked at this really odd thing that he does, and that's the way he uses the word amen. Uh, he uses amen in a, word that, in a way that no one else has ever used it. Uh, we looked at that. I think we wore that out. I think I probably beat that horse to death. Um, but this is what we're going to look at. Okay, yeah. I'm so organized. This is how organized I am. These are all my talks. Okay. This is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at uh, Jesus as uh, a, a, a rebel. Uh, just the very fact that he's from Galilee means that he's looked upon as a rebel. Uh, we're going to look at Jesus uh, as a Jewish thinker. The way he, uh, We're going to talk more about parables and the way he engages the imagination. We're going to look at, at Jesus the healer. Um, we're going to look at what he says when he heals people. He never, says, he never says the same thing when he heals people. I've got a whole list. I'm making lists. I've got a whole list of all the things that Jesus says when he heals people. He never repeats the same thing twice. He's non-programmatic the way he, uh, he does his ministry. Um, there are a couple of healings that aren't about the healing. We're going to look at that. There are two healings that are actually parables. We're going to look at those. And we're going to look at the Sabbath healings that always got him in so much trouble because the Pharisees thought he was... Well, he was breaking the oral law. 
Uh, we're going to look at Jesus the rabbi, uh, this early uh, innovation that had just begun in Judaism. The pro, we call it the proto-rabbinic period because rabbi in Jesus' day doesn't mean what rabbi means now. It was, it was forming at that point. It was a new idea. And, uh, but Jesus was called rabbi, so we, we, we want to look at that. Um, we're going to look at what Jesus uh, does as a rabbi, how as a rabbi he builds a fence around the Torah. Just In some ways the Pharisees were doing the same thing, only of course Jesus does it uh, perfectly and, and it's, it's, uh, it's not a burden the way he does it. We're going to look at Jesus' relationship with the synagogue. And the synagogue is another new thing in Jesus' time, relative, relatively new. Uh, we're going to look at Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, and right now, we're, in a minute, we're going to look at who Jesus thinks he is, which I think is a pretty cool question. We're going to look at his prayer life, Jesus the prayer warrior. Um, um, what he teaches on prayer, and we're going to look at the different times that he, he prays. And, and, uh, and again, we'll see it's very non, non-programmatic. Uh, this is something that really interests me. We're going to look at Jesus the conservative. Um, this is a new idea for me, but in many ways, Jesus is the conservative. The Pharisees are the liberals. They're the ones that are making up new things. Jesus is the one who says, what does Moses say? Right? You err because you don't know the scripture. He's the one who's quoting the scripture. So in, in many ways, uh, he's a conservative. But you can never say he's just one thing, right? That's one of the unique, unique things about Jesus. Uh, in fact, uh, we know Jesus the way we know no one else. I don't even know what tense to speak of him in because he's, he's a present reality right now, but I'm talking about the historical Jesus, so I'll talk about him in past tense. It's just there's no one like him. There's no one like him, and he is uh, indwelling. I pray he's indwelling you. Uh, and and uh, I appreciate what, what was said earlier. If, if you're here and you don't know him, we're praying that by, by, uh, by the end of your time here, he'll be so believable and so beautiful to you that you'll, you'll uh, say yes to him. Uh, we're going to look at Jesus as a son and Jesus as the friend. We're looking at, at the way he uses meal fellowship. We're looking at an odd, another odd thing that I'm still working on, and that is all of the twin incidents in the Gospels. I find that really interesting. And if once I mention them, you'll, you'll go, ooh, that is odd. Two storms on the Sea of Galilee, two miraculous catches of fishes, uh, fish, two sendings, two feedings, the 4,000, the 5,000. There's odd to me that there are these twin, twin incidents. And in, 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 in Judaism, the, rabbin, the rabbis will say when there's a twin incident, one helps you interpret the other. And we're going to see if that, uh, if that works. What else? We're going to look at uh, the emotional life of Jesus, how complex his emotions are. Uh, we're going to see him restless and compassionate and angry and defiant and tender. And my favorite passage from Luke 10 where he's filled with joy from the Holy Spirit. I love that moment. I think it's my favorite moment in his life. Uh, we're going to see Jesus as the lawbreaker. And when I say I have that in quotes, because we know he doesn't break the law, right? I mean, we all know he's perfect. He doesn't break the law. But the oral law, of the Pharisees, he breaks every chance he gets, which I think is really cool because it drives them crazy, right? Now, does Jesus have to spit to heal somebody? No, he doesn't even have to be there to heal somebody. Go home, your daughter's well. So how does he heal the blind man? Spits, makes mud on the Sabbath, and everybody goes nuts, you know? And that's just one of the things I love about him. Uh, I love that about him. So he's perfect. He never breaks the law. In fact, he's come to fulfill the law. But the oral law, 
that the Pharisees are sort of making up as they go, he breaks that every chance he gets. It's so cool. Um, we're going to talk about Jesus and, Jesus and the angels, uh, times when angels appear in, uh, in his life. They're there from the very beginning, and they're there at the end. Uh, we're going to talk about Jesus as the pilgrim. He makes pilgrimages uh, every year. And in fact, Jesus spends um, three months out of every year walking back and forth to Jerusalem. Jesus the pilgrim is a really interesting topic. Uh, and then finally, we're going to look at the innocence of Jesus. Interesting to me that at the trial... During the trials, everyone's saying he's innocent. The, the guy who's crucifying says he's innocent. Pilate says he's innocent. Everybody says he's innocent. No, nevertheless, he's, he's convicted. And uh, we're going to look at the, these mysterious post-resurrection appearances. Okay, so that's, that's the plan. Uh, I hope it's a good one. Um, I hope it's a good one. Um, so let me make a couple of more sort of prefatory uh, statements. First of all, I want to talk about the difference between knowing and knowing about. Because I'm going to talk about details, okay? And, and, and you can know all the details about Jesus' life and not know Jesus. Okay, fair enough? But that doesn't mean we shouldn't learn all the details. And my, one of my convictions is I want to know everything about Jesus I can know. But I want to know him first. So I've, I've written a little essay here. I hope you don't mind me reading to you. I hate to be read to. I hate to be read to, but I'm going to read to you. So there it is. Okay. My mother was an English teacher, and she tried to read to us every night. And she would like, you know, I'd have to sit still in the first place, which I wasn't very fond of doing. And then she'd want to read some boring. So I'd, I hate being read to. Okay, here we go. Calm down. On Saturday, September 3rd, 1966, my father and I had a meeting in our pastor's office. I was nine years old and had walked the aisle to receive Jesus the previous Sunday, which was August 28th. Our pastor, a gentle and soft-spoken man named James Hopkins, who in our day we call Brother Hopkins, Southern Baptist, uh, he wanted to meet with us to make sure I understood what I had gotten myself into. My father, a busy doctor, had taken the time to come with me. I don't remember anything of the discussion except Brother Hopkins at one point asking me if I had invited Jesus into my heart. I think he's invited me into his heart, I responded. It was one of the first insight I ever had regarding what was different about Jesus of Nazareth. In, the, in our church, we'd say, oh, you've asked Jesus into your heart. And that always sort of bugged me. I go, mm, I think he's invited me into his heart. I've always kind of been in pain in that way. <laughs> Brother Hopkins opened a new Bible and presented it to me. On the inside cover, he wrote these words. I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior in Inglewood Baptist Church, and then in my father's handwriting, Saturday, September 3rd, 1966. Below that, on a crude dotted line in my childish hand in block letters, I didn't have a signature at that point, I wrote, Mike Card. Below, uh, below, the words, the, below that, the words witnessed by James Hopkins' pastor. Below that, looking like one of the signature, signatures from the Declaration of Independence, my father's William J. Card dad. Three weeks later, on the 25th, I was, I was baptized. That was 56 years ago. Since then, according to popular parlance, I might say I have followed Jesus. The truth is, I've been led by Jesus. 
the shepherd, a reluctant, frightened, and remarkably clueless sheep. After all, I didn't ask him into my heart. He asked me into his. On that September 3rd Sunday morning, a half a century ago, I came to know Jesus. Growing up in a Christian home, I had come to understand that Jesus had died on a cross. At age nine, I realized that he died for me. Once again, I didn't give my life to him on September 3rd, 1966. He'd given his life for me on a Friday in the Jewish month of Av, somewhere around the year 33 AD. In the half century since, he's gone on giving me his life. As a little boy, I had some rather vague ideas about Jesus, that he was a carpenter, that he lived in some place called Galilee. I knew what he looked like, auburn hair, blue eyes. <laughs> At least that's how all the Sunday school books pictured him. I'm not scoffing at my church's portrayal. In China, Jesus is often pictured with Asian features. In the nativity scene at the black missionary church I frequent, he's African. These should not be seen as inaccuracies. Rather, they are evidence that each different community has embraced Jesus as their own. Okay. In the years that followed, especially after the explosion that was the Jesus movement of the 70s and 80s, anyone remember that? Yeah. I learned more about Jesus. I went to university and studied his life in more detail, uh, learning about the Judaism and Hellenism that shaped his world, about the Romans and their brutal hold on his people. Since then, I've researched and written hundreds of songs about him, uh, books and, and many records. I know more about Jesus. I know more about Jesus, but I would hesitate to say I know him more than I did when he first invited me into his life. That's the point I'm trying to make. Um, this, this week is going to be the result of two chirotic moments, and I apologize for using a big word. Why well, use a, a little word that everyone can understand when you can use a big word that no one understands? Uh, but there, there, there's no other word like that. Uh, you know the word chronos, Greek word, chronos. This is a chronometer. And there are two words in Greek for time. And chronos is, is the passage of time. But the word that we don't have in our English language is kairos, which is uh, kind of in the fullness of time. And so when I, I'm turning that to adjective, this, the, I had, there were two kairotic moments, two moments that were filled with meaning for me. And uh, I want to explain those two uh, to you. One of them occurred in Jerusalem. Uh, the other one, I think, as far as I remember, happened here. Um, but the, the first one, um, in Jerusalem, I was having a discussion with a Jewish friend who owns a bookstore in the old city. We were talking about the various aspects of Jesus' kosher life. I was trying to impress him with my knowledge of Judaism, which is a, kind of a stupid thing to do to a Jewish person. Who's, <laughs> but, um, I say, of course Jesus is kosher. He goes to Jerusalem for the three pilgrimage feasts, right, every year. But then this guy, who's, he's not a rabbi, but he's a rabbinic student. He says, but what does that mean? My friend asked, smiling, because he knew I had no clue what it meant. <laughs> it means that Jesus spends as much as three months out of every year going back and forth to Jerusalem. Ten days down, ten days there, and ten days back. I was stunned. And as so often happens at such moments, somewhere a door opened for me. Often we know simple facts, but we've not learned to ask what they mean or what they might mean. 
Okay, that's the, that was the first incident. What does that mean? So I know all these facts, but what does it mean? And, and we're, that's the methodology I hope we're going to stick to. And if I just give a fact, you hold up your little hand and call me on it. You know, be nice, but call me on it. Here's the second one. The second incident that led to what we're going to look at this weekend uh, happened at a conference, and I think it happened here. In the midst of a question and answer session, someone asked me about Jesus' brothers. How many did he have was the question. It was a little old lady that asked the question, I remember. Uh, I'm not sure we know, I responded, meaning I wasn't sure. I knew. In the back of the room, an elderly woman responded, oh yes, we know there were four and their names were James, Judas, Simon, and Joseph. Once again, stunned. I'm stunned. Having spent my entire adult life learning about Jesus of Nazareth, I did not know how many brothers he had, nor what their names were, even uh, though they're clearly listed in Mark 6. It's hard to learn to ask what the facts mean if you don't know the facts in the first place. So there it is. This, this week is a response to those, uh, those two uh, chirotic moments. Okay? And here's some, here's some interesting facts and a little sketch that I'm working on. Yeah. And we'll start looking at scripture. Um, here's some facts. The, the distance, Jesus, the distance uh, from Jesus. Of course, 2,000 years. We know that time, in time. But I googled... Um, Jesus' house was 6,578 miles from my house. <laughs> That's an interesting detail. Um, 2,000 years is almost an unimaginably long period of time. We, we talk about, you know, oh, 1,000 years. Like, well, I live in a Civil War town. Like 20,000 people died in my town in one battle during the Civil War. And people talk like, you know, they understand that. We can't grasp that, that, that space of time. It's just too far away. So he lives over 6,000 miles. He, he, he lived, lives uh, uh, 2,000 years. And the cultural distance is almost uh, insurmountable as well. The understanding the culture of Jesus' time is just, it's almost a full-time job. Um, Judaism, Hellenism, um, the Roman influence, um, and, the, and they're all, it's all in the gospel. So there's a cultural distance. The other thing is uh, we, we possess such a small piece of his life. Uh, I was teaching a class on the life of Jesus in, in Rapid City, South Dakota, and uh, I assigned the college kids, and I assigned them a paper. Well, you would think I'd ask them for a quart of blood. They're all moaning and you know, five pages or something like that. And this young woman, Rachel Hutcherson is her name. I told her I was going to make her name immortal. Um, <laughs> Rachel comes up. She goes, I'm going to drop the class. I don't even know I took this class. I'm a math major. <laughs> okay. So I said, okay, you don't have to write a paper. Okay. I said, all I want from you is a number. I've always wanted to know what percentage of Jesus' life is presented in the Gospels. See, I got math major. I got her interested. Well... <laughs> She, she comes back, you know, a week later with 20 pages of calculations. <laughs> See, I captured her imagination, right? Numbers is what she's interested in. Okay, and I know it's, a, it's not a hard, fast number, but I think it's pretty close. She took every incident in the gospel, estimated in minutes how long each one took, 
added them up and divided them into three years. Impressive. I've still got the paper. And here's the number, 0.09. Of the three years of his ministry, if, she said it this way, if Jesus' life is $100, we have nine cents of it. And that just brought a whole new perspective on me because, I mean, I grew up in a church where they'd say things like, well, Jesus only wept twice. Well, he only wept twice in 0.09%. And I actually had a lady do the math for that for, that for me. So if he, if he weeps twice in 0.09, so in 100% it would be this, and it ends up being like 200 times or something. Uh, twice a, almost twice a week. It ends up being almost twice a week. Uh, but uh, that, that really changed things for me. Because, um, first of all, it makes you realize how precious you know, what we have is and it makes you realize how many other wonderful things he must have done that we don't know about. How many other people, how many other times did he walk on them? We just don't know. But if you're like me, I believe the Bible's perfect. Okay, I'll fight you about that. I think it's perfect. And so I think .09 is perfect. I think it's everything I need to know. I mean, what if we had 50%? We go nuts. We go crazy with 50%. We go crazy with .09. So we have such a small piece of his life. Uh, so that's another, another problem, another thing that's an uh, obstacle. Another obstacle is um, I have let other people know him for me. And you should never do that. Certainly people help us. I mean, I, I want to help you know him better. I want you to help me know him better. We help each other. But you never just settle for knowing Jesus through someone else, through whatever the last book is, you know, that sort of thing. So don't do that. Don't do that. A um, uh, couple more. I read the Gospels with a, a, an over-familiarity. Uh, if you're like me, and you are, we grew up in the church, most of us, and when I read uh, any line in the Gospel, I can pretty much tell you what the next line's going to say. I'm not saying I have it all memorized, but I know what the next line's going to say. And so I end up listening to the Gospels the same, same way I listen to my wife. Okay. <laughs> When we're talking, I know what she's about to say. And if you, that's not a very good way. And I'm almost always right. I'm not saying I'm wrong. You know, I pretty much know what she's going to say. Because I know her so well. There's nothing, that's good. That's good. But that's not how you listen to people, right? And, and so don't listen to the gospels the way you listen to your spouse, okay? Um, even, you know, even if you think you know. And that's actually one good reason for uh, looking at a new translation. Because I, 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 um, I'll try a new translation, and I'll think, because I think in NIV. I don't know about you. I grew up with NIV. And um, so I, I'll look at CSB or some, some other translation, and I don't know exactly what the next verse is going to be. That's, that's a good thing. You should never think you know what God is about to say. And finally, um, Jesus frightens me. And what I'm referring to is his absolute lordship. Bill Lane, my mentor, used to talk about this a lot, and I never liked it when he talked about it. Lord means Lord. His Lordship is absolute. And you see this in the Gospels. Jesus walks up to someone like Peter and says, follow me. He doesn't say, go home, talk to your wife, think about it, get back to me. That's not how it works. He says, follow me, what happens? He drops his net, he walks away. And he does that, you know, a number of times in the Gospels. 
And that's because his lordship is absolute. I mean, all over the world, people are giving up their lives for him. His lordship is absolute. Lord means Lord. And frankly, that frightens me. Okay? Now, let me scare, uh, share with you my sketch. This is going so well. I was so afraid this is all going to crash and burn, but this is going so well. Okay, uh, in the last three years, I've read 87 books on the life of Jesus, like total nerd. And I have gathered as many um, aspects of his life as I can in this little sketch. Okay, so here's a quick sketch of Jesus. He's around five foot six. This is five foot six. Uh, how do I know that? Uh, Israeli Antiquity uh, uh, Society did an excavation of over 200 graves, first century Jewish males. Average height was five six. So I'm just saying average. The, according to the, uh, the, the bones of St. Peter, uh, in St. Peter's, uh, Peter's bones are there, supposedly his bones. He's only 5'5". Five five. He didn't even make it, Peter didn't even make it to 5'6". Now you're thinking Jesus is short. No, everybody's short, right? Maybe he was taller, maybe he was shorter, but 5'6 is the average. And I actually talked to this old, old guy who had a vision of Jesus in his hospital room. And I said, well, what do you look like? You know, you meet these people who have had visions. And then my first question is, what does he look like? Right? And uh, he said, he's really short. <laughs> so who knows? But if he was average, he was five foot six. Hair, three inches long. Again, that comes from the grave evidence. Three inches long. And so this, you know, wavy hair, Jesus, that, that's not accurate. His skin, his skin is honey colored. Um, he is virtually unrecognizable in a crowd. He looks just like everyone else. He has to be pointed out by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. He looks just like everybody else. He is not recognized by the 12 from 100 yards away in John 21, second miraculous catch of fish. They're 100 yards away. They don't know it's him because he looks just like everybody else. The Gospels do not have a physical description of him because they're testimonies and not biographies. And apparently, nobody thought there was anything worth taking note of. So my conclusion is, and I won't be dogmatic about this. Never be dogmatic about what the Bible's not dogmatic about. But you know what I'm doing. Um, he is uh, uh, he's, uh, unrecognizable. He wears a short knee-length tunic of wool or linen. And he uh, makes fun of scribes who wear long robes. That's Mark 12, 38. Over this tunic, he wears a simple mantle, usually made of wool. And he uh, will use that as a blanket when he sleeps on the ground, which he apparently frequently has to do. This mantle has the prescribed tassels, telith, on the, on the corners. That's what the woman reaches out and touches. He speaks three languages. How do I know that? Because everyone speaks three languages. In the synagogue, he speaks Hebrew. And to everyone else kind of in, in and about town, he speaks Aramaic, but he also speaks Greek. When he's talking to Pilate, he's speaking Greek. When he's speaking to the Syrophoenician woman, he's speaking Greek. Okay, so probably three languages. Uh, in, in his humanity, do, do we need to stop talking about that? I mean, I know Jesus as the Son of God speaks all languages. I know that. But I'm saying in his humanity, in the limitations that he took upon himself when he took them on flesh. Okay. Because I know some of you, some of you are bothered for me to say he only speaks three languages. Uh, I know how you think. How about this? There are certain syllables that he can't pronounce. The difference between the Hebrew shin and sin are lost on Jesus. Uh, the Hebrew letter shin 
which looks kind of like this. When Spock does that, that's he's doing a shin. Okay. If you put a dot here, it's shuh. If there's no dot, it's suh. Jesus doesn't um, acknowledge those differences. Why do I know that? Because he's Galileans. Galileans don't differentiate between the two. And it makes them sound uneducated. So uh, there are certain syllables that he cannot or does not pronounce. And it makes him sound uneducated. In Acts 4.13, uh, the disciples of Jesus, are the Greek word is idiotes. It's where we get our word idiot from. It doesn't mean idiot. It means uneducated or unschooled. But they, they have an accent, identifiable accent, kind of like me, that makes them sound uneducated. Kind of like me. So I'm like Jesus in that. I, I have a funny accent. At one point, Galileans are not even permitted to read the Torah in the temple in Jerusalem for fear that they would mispronounce it. So uh, he grows up in a household of at least nine people. You got four brothers, at least two sisters, and Joseph and Mary and him. And according to my math, that's nine. Uh, his grandfather's name are Jacob and Heli. I looked at the genealogies. As the eldest, he would have had special responsibility for his family or in his family. As a carpenter, he would have been regarded, highly regarded as particularly learned. In the synagogue, a common statement was, and this is quoting the Talmud, is there a carpenter or the son of a carpenter among us who can solve this problem for us? So he would have been respected as a, 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 he's a person who can do things. And that comes from David Flusser's book, The Sage from Galilee. Uh, from at least the age of 12, he has an awareness of his special relationship with God, who he refers to as his father. His favorite verse is Deuteronomy 6.4. When asked what's the most important command, he always answers with it. And when a scribe asks Jesus, I mean, when Jesus asks a scribe, what's the most important commandment, the scribe answers with the Shema, and Jesus is right. So that's kind of his favorite verse. He shows an open disdain for the new innovations of the Pharisees in their oral law, especially in regards to the Sabbath, and he violates them every chance he gets. He, crawl, he calls them rules made by men. That's Matthew 15, 9. But as a rabbi, he adds innovations. And one of the best known ones is uh, in Matthew 6. The, the pillars of piety in Judaism are prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor. Okay? If, if you're a, a, an observant Jew, you do these things. You know, it's not optional. The pillars of piety. Jesus adds one thing to the pillars of piety, and that's secrecy. When you pray, go inside. Don't let anybody know. Not like the Pharisees who you know, pray on the street. Course. When you give to the poor, and this is a unique, as far as we know, Jesus came up with this saying, you don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing when you give to the poor. And when you're fasting, you don't let people know, right? You wash your face. You don't look tired or hungry. And so that's one of the innovations. And we'll look at some of the other, other innovations that he did. Uh, so in, in a rabbi, as a rabbi, he does uh, um, innovations. Uh, he expresses his Judaism by going to the synagogue, as was his custom, the Gospels say, tra by traveling to Jerusalem for the three pilgrimage feasts. He pays the half-shekel uh, tax, Though as a teacher, he was exempt. He didn't have to pay that tax. Teachers don't, weren't, weren't required to pay it, but he pays it anyway. Of course, he gets it out of a fish's mouth, but that's another thing. <laughs> he sends a healed leper to the priest to be examined. 
right? So he's being, he's, he's being very strict. Uh, and he won't let people carry anything through the temple, through the courts of the temple. I think that's interesting. Okay. At least nine times in the Gospels, he goes into hiding. And we're going to look at that. Nine times he goes into hiding. Uh, at least seven times he asked his disciples to keep his Messiahship a secret. We'll look at that too. Interesting. When he heals people, he frequently asks them not to tell. Please don't tell anybody I did this. Of course, most or several times they don't. How can you not tell? Right? 32 times in the gospel, his emotional state is described usually with the word compassion. The gospels never mention him smiling or laughing. One time he's filled with joy. There's only one, oh, only one unique moment when he's filled with joy. That's uh, in Luke 10, 21. And, and the thing was the sidebar because I can't not talk about this. What fills Jesus with joy? He sees that God is revealing things to children and he's hiding them from the wise. That fills him with joy. That the world's been turned upside down. He's just that sort of person. I know I'm, I need to stop here. I'm, I'm almost at the end. Um, uh, already said that. He frequently answers a question with a question. 17 times he does that. I think there's one, he asked 311 questions and he answers one of them. Well, he uses questions to say things. So, yeah. Um, 53 times in the Gospels he is misunderstood. Uh, his mother and brothers think he's out of his mind. Um, 45 times he quotes the Hebrew Bible, but my new uh, idea is he doesn't just quote the Hebrew Bible, he thinks in the Hebrew Bible. Um, he would have been called Yeshua or Yeshu. Probably in day-to-day, um, in day-to-day parlance, his friends called him Yeshu. That's like Mike. It's this hypocratic name. My name is Michael, right? But you call me Mike, Yeshua, Yeshu. So that's probably what he was uh, commonly called, okay? So we're at it. Well, we should stop. And when we get back, we'll look at Galilee, and we'll look at this uh, list I have of what, who does Jesus think he is, okay? Right? Okay.